You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, September 17, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, with the day's news, Peter Cooper. Thanks, Ash. For the week ending September 12th, seasonally adjusted jobless claims in the U.S. had dropped to 860,000 from 893,000 the week prior. Unadjusted, last week's initial unemployment claims fell to 790,021 from 865,995. Looking at the cumulative data we have for adjusted claims, we can see that the last several weeks unadjusted claims have maintained a consistent level. This could point to how perhaps the rate at which layoffs are slowing has now stalled. There's so much uncertainty as the U.S. edges close to flu season, as fiscal stimulus wanes, and the presidential election draws near. For the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, designed specifically for those who do not qualify for regular unemployment insurance, such as the self-employed and gig workers, 658,737 initial claims were filed unadjusted. For the week ending August 29th, those receiving funds from the Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation Program, which grants an additional 13 weeks of benefits for those who have exhausted their regular benefits, rose to 1.5 million. Altogether, the DOL suggests that nearly 30 million people are receiving unemployment benefits of any sort. The labor market may continue to suffer in this way for many months to come, but it's worth taking a step back and understanding if our data is giving us the complete picture. In recent weeks, it's becoming more apparent that there's been a spike in fraudulent claims, just as there have been for the payroll protection program. And while this doesn't diminish the scale of the damage done to the labor market, it may lead to overcounting claims. State and federal estimates also seem to be at odds with one another. For example, the federal data suggests that over 6 million Californians are receiving pandemic unemployment assistance. However, the state's data shows that it's closer to the 2 million mark. It muddles the answers to questions about the effectiveness of government programs and the speed at which the economy is improving. In a time where a crisis has rapidly unfolded, there is a lot of appreciation for the timeliness of data, like weekly jobless claims, to help provide a sense of where the economy stands in real time. But it has its flaws. And while the data in some cases appears to be overcount, there are still groups of people that the weekly jobless claims data does not capture, such as undocumented workers. Because some groups are not included in the data, it doesn't provide the complete picture we're looking for. And with that, I'll give it back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Peter. Welcome back, Ed. Thank you. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Ed, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier in the day. You're now 25% of the way through the time period that you've been talking about now for months, the September, October timeframe. What are you seeing? Yeah, uh, so that's exactly what I wanted to talk about today is uh, this whole thesis. Uh, and, you know, let me tell you that I would say that so far it's been it's proved right, but uh, 
I never was saying from the beginning that we were going to see stocks crater. I did say that there was going to be downside risk and that likely it was volatility. I think that the way that I'm looking at it is the moment of truth is now. That is in terms of the dichotomy between the real economy and the financial economy. I believe or I have believed for some time and I still believe would would uh, be closed now. That dichotomy would be closed significantly in September and October. And the reason is, is because we're going to get a lot more clarity on a lot of different fronts, uh, on the economic front, and I think also on the earnings front. And I think we're seeing that uh, with regard to what's happening right now in terms of the data. And that's one of the reasons that we've had more volatility. And that's why we've had a correction on the NASDAQ. And the real question going forward is, is that correction, you know, the 11 percent, the 10 or 11 percent down on the Nasdaq, is that going to be enough or are we going to see more downside risk over the next, uh, you know, 45 days? Yeah. Talking of data, I know that you're watching the data closely. What did you think this morning on the new jobs data? Yeah. So, I mean, there are four different pieces of data that I have seen over the past two days that. Uh, go in line with what I'm talking about now. And basically, it goes to something that I think you and I were talking about, the City Surprise Index before. It's been, it jumped up in a big way as a result of the pandemic. So, you know, it went way down because of the pandemic. You know, we saw data that was terrible relative to expectations. And since that time, we've actually seen data that's positive relative to expectations. If you want to take a, a very kind view of the markets, the markets are rallying on the back of uh, this surprise, this upside surprise for the data. But now what we're seeing is we're seeing soft data. Uh, the the jobless claims data that came out today wasn't so much uh, lower than what people expected, but it was soft. This is the right. third week in a row since they've re-corrected their seasonal adjustment data that we've been near the 900,000 mark. So here we are, you know, some six months into the pandemic, some uh, five, four and a half months after the lockdown. And we're still at 900,000 jobless claims, which is a level superior to the highest levels that we've had in any other recession. So even if you would say that uh, unemployment goes up in the initial phases of, of, of a recovery, that's such a large level. You have to wonder whether or not if we're in a recovery, whether that recovery will lose steam, peter out, and that's going to follow through in terms of negative uh, surprises on earnings as well as the economy. Yeah. You know, uh, two things. First, uh, for Real Vision subscribers, they will know that you were out ahead of the curve talking about how off the adjustment data was at the beginning of this crisis. Uh, and then that uh, they were actually, they made those adjustments uh, in the way the data were calculated to better adjust for precisely what you had flagged uh, months ago. Uh, you know, and second, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, look, what we're seeing is improvement, but improvement at a decelerating rate. It's uh, a, a declining second derivative. Yeah. And, you know, I want to get to that, that decline second derivative that you're talking about. But let me uh, flag the other three pieces of data that came out that I thought were significant in terms of undershooting. Uh, we saw yesterday we got the uh, retail sales numbers 
they were uh i think that the 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 total retail sales were 0.6% month on month up versus 1.0% expected if you look right. at just the core it was 0.7% versus 0.9% and then earlier today we got two pieces of housing data one was building permits the other was housing starts both of those were below expectations so below expectations below expectations below expectations below expectations those are the four pieces of data that we've gotten over the last two days so what that's right. telling you is is the direction of the real economy is uh not as robust as you would expect uh given uh, you know what economists have put out and so they're going to have to revise downward to to meet th those th that data that's right. that's what you're getting at when you say uh you know the economy is leveling off yeah yeah, and precisely the same as uh, on the retail sales data, 0 0.6 uh, actual and uh, coming off a 1.2 print positive last month. So again, death by the second derivative, declining uh, rate of improvement. Yeah, and you know, the way that I would characterize it is, is, is that uh, this undershooting that we're seeing is doubly severe because of uh, that second derivative that you're talking about. So, what you know, we talked about the V-shaped recovery really being a reverse radical recovery. That means that, you know, you go down and, and then you go up again and then you sort of drift back from there and eventually you get back to a square one. Yeah. The problem there is, is, is that as we're moving from the V into the, the slower trajectory, we're doing so in an undershooting kind of way. So not only is the data going down, but it's going down at a rate that is more precipitous than was expected. And so that has to feed through into how people are thinking about the economy, how they're thinking about earnings growth. And therefore, that's what I believe is going to uh, create more downside risk as we go through this volatile period. And this is a period where I would expect that we're going to see a lot more uh, earnings numbers come out that are very concrete that will tell us, okay, this is what's really going on in the economy. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We talked earlier today uh, about some of the impacts on markets. What are your thoughts here? I mean, we're closing out the day, and I you know, have some other thoughts to add to this later. But look, S&P down uh, less than 1%, 0.8% on the day, settling at the 33.57 level. Nothing dramatic. Yeah, so that that was uh, that's good in terms of you know the market uh, internals, the market sentiment. Because when uh, you look at the data earlier today, uh, we saw two percent down. So the market didn't close on its lows. So it shows you that we're not necessarily seeing uh, the market falling apart per se. There's still persistence of momentum to the upside. Uh, right. But they definitely did react to the data that we're seeing. But you know, if I could o characterize the overall market, what I would say is is that uh, we're seeing signs of a mania. You know, I've mentioned this before, and I think that there are a number of telltale signs. You know, back uh, when we had the oil uh, problem, we saw people um, getting into uh, leverage ETFs in oil. But, you know, this was back, if you remember, when we had the shutdown and people really got burned by that. But we're back to the leverage ETFs again. Now it's the technology ETFs, the triple Q, the leverage version of that uh, that we're seeing. Uh, here are some other things that I, I find that are interesting. You and I, we've talked at nauseum about the uh, the short dated retail options trading uh, that we've seen. So retail retail investors getting into short dated options trading 
getting out over their skis be, uh, in terms of their knowledge base, but definitely as the market goes up, benefiting from that. Uh, another thing that I would uh, mention is, and you talked about this yesterday, I believe, the Snowflake IPO. Yeah. The Snowflake IPO, the first day pop. Uh, by the way, let me just stop here for a second before I go into this next point, uh, Ash, because there's some guy cutting the grass outside. <laughs> so it's really distracting me. But what I was, I was going to say is, is that, you know, the first day uh, pop on an IPO, when you think about Snowflake, uh, it, it's been a lot more severe this time go around. We've had something over 30% where it was in the teens before, and Snowflake doubled uh, their IPO, which meant that they left $3.8 billion on the table. That's the most that we've seen a company leave on the table in 12 years since a 2008 uh, IPO. So uh, this is a company that uh, basically has gone up five times you know, it's worth five times what it was worth as a private valuation company just a few months ago. That gives you a sense of just the run up in these technology type companies that we've seen. So that's another sign of the mania. And right. and so just piggybacking on this whole concept, they left money on the table. Now people are saying, OK, so if you're going to leave money on the pay table, don't do an IPO, do a, um, a SPAC, you know, the special purpose acquisition uh, company. Do it that way in order to make sure that you get all the upside for the company and, and you're not getting this pop. And, you know, those shares don't do well anyway. You know, uh, any company that pops, uh, you know, doubles their shares in the IPO, they on average, they've underperformed in the market afterward. That's what the analysis have sh has shown. But the problem with the SPACs is, first of all, had you ever even heard of a SPAC before a few uh, uh, months ago? I mean, the, these these SPACs are coming out hot and heavy now. Uh, Ackman did his SPAC. Now Richard Branson is out with a special purpose acquisition uh, company. And here's a guy who has been in the media because he has Virgin Atlantic. You know, uh, he, he had Virgin Air. He also has gems. He's leveraged to exactly the the things that are getting hit. And then he goes out and he, he says, you know, I want to have a special purpose acquisition vehicle to do more of the same. I was just looking at this, actually. Uh, let me see if I can find uh, what, what, the, um, what the thing says in his 10Q or in, uh, in the, the filing. It says he filed with the U.S. Uh, Securities and Exchange Administration. It says we intend to search for targets that operate in consumer facing industries in the U.S. and Western Europe. We believe that we will have a unique value proposition for our target due to our ability to apply the Virgin brand to fuel its growth and enhance its products. And he's looking to do this in uh, uh, travel, uh, financial services, media, music and renewable energy. I mean, those are the exact same uh, companies, places that he's going. Why would you give this guy four hundred million dollars when his his investments have already tanked? So I, I know I'm going on and on about Richard Branson, but to me, these are signs of of uh, you know of froth. I would call it a mania. Right. And it's not, of course, about Richard Branson. It's the metaphor. It's about what it says about the place that we are in markets right now and what the perceptions uh, around this are. It's a fascinating point. Yeah. And, you know, there was one last point that I would make on this same uh, score is, is that uh, the FT had an article today and they were talking about uh, the loan market uh, and how it's pretty hot. I would I would characterize it as get while the getting's good. Richard Branson knows to get while the getting's good. 
so do private equity companies because 24% of the money raised in the U.S. loan market has been used to fund dividends to private equity owners. So private equity owners see this as a opportunity to cash in uh, on the investments they've made. They're going to do it now because you got to get while the getting's good. Uh, that's an extraordinary statistic. 24%, 24 cents on the dollar uh, of every loan made is going to private equity. I mean, that is just staggering. Yeah. And so it, it, it shows you uh, what's happening. They're not, you know, it's not like they're, they're raising new money uh, and, uh, and, and, and investing. We're talking about 24% going to cash out. It's almost like an in, it's like insiders. You know, when you go to uh, publicly listed companies, you say, you know, what are the insiders doing? Well, the insiders of these, uh, uh, these PE companies, they're selling. Ed, you've convinced me. Why don't you and I raise a SPAC? <laughs> we should have a million dollars. We can search for opportunities see, in the US. You, know, that is, you make a good point. You know, if we want to, if we want to piggyback on this, this is now the time. Get while the getting's good, ass. That that's what what you would say. Yeah, it's you know, all about. I, I would I would sum this up to say that um, you know you have the real economy. Uh, it's not doing terribly, uh, but it's not doing well. And the numbers are definitely coming down. At some point, uh, you know, the the drip, drip, drip of nine hundred thousand people uh, filing initial jobless claims will hit investment consumption output, and that's uh, that's that's a problem. Then on the other side, you have this this mania going on in the, in the financial markets, and that's all coming to a head right now in the September to October timeframe. So I think that there could be more downside. There doesn't necessarily have to be more downside. There definitely will be more volatility, I believe. Um, and the one thing that I would point out in all of this is that to the degree that there is downside, there's almost uh, nothing that U.S. Treasuries are going to do to save you from that. I think you yeah. and I were talking about that. Um, we can talk about the Fed in, in, in this regard because the Fed came out with some interesting news yesterday. And yeah. Treasuries, they haven't budged at all. So the market was down. You know, we had big stuff coming out of Jay Powell and uh, the treasuries, the 10 years at 0.68%. It was at 0.68% on Tuesday. Eight basis points. It moved eight basis points. So I would say that, you know, the, nothing's happening. It's uh, if, if the market falls out of bed, you're not going to make it up on the other side. Now, yeah. That's a, this is such a critical point, Ed. Could, maybe you could talk a little bit more about this. The idea is the risk parity trade is unwinding, uh, that there's just, you know, there's nowhere to run to, nowhere to hide. Yeah. Part so, the I mean, in the Vandellas market. When, when equities go down, traditionally, and, and by the way, I'm going to talk to um, the, uh, the CIO of uh, GMO uh, uh, later, that, that should come out next week about this idea. He, he actually talked about this, about, you know, where else you can go to get uh, some upside on your fixed income portfolio. But the bottom line is, is that when, when bad things happen, usually fixed income is where you can hide. You can get some liquidity there. You can get some, uh, you can get some, uh, some juice, a pop, because people run to the safe havens. But we're so low now in terms of our yields, you're not going to get a whole lot of pop. Uh, and so you're going to be exposed to a lot of downside in equity, but not get any compensation on your fixed income part of your portfolio. And 
I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to say about what the Fed was doing. I mean, because apparently the Fed was doing a decent amount, but we didn't get a whole lot of, uh, of movement out of fixed income. Yeah, not that you'd know it by looking at the tape. You know, and this is your point, I think, to, to why this intersects with people's lives is, look, if you're in a 60-40 portfolio uh, and, uh, you know, your your equities are getting smashed, if this does happen, you know, typically you would make that up on the fixed income side. But when yields are pinned uh, at or near the, uh, the zero lower bound, 660, it looks like about 69 basis points right now on the 10, there's nowhere to make it up on the other side of the equation. And that, that is such a, an important thing for retail investors to realize and understand because it can actually hurt you. Um, look, I mean, you know, Jay Powell out yesterday, Chairman Powell, highly uncertain outlook for the U.S. economy. 13 out of 17 participants uh, saying that the zero lower bound is going to stay through 2023 and nothing happens. Right. You take a look at that chart uh, going back to 1954 uh, from the St. Louis Fed Fred database. Uh, you know, this when we went to zero lower bound in uh, in December of 2008, it was revolutionary. It was it was shocking to people. Right. There people were upset about it. Uh, and now the chairman of the Fed has just announced that we're going to be staying in this massively accommodative position uh, from now until 2023. Now, am I saying that's the wrong decision? I, I don't know. I'm glad I don't have to make that decision. But the thing to me that's absolutely striking about it is even if you agree with Chair Powell's decision, the question has to become, how can this have no impact on the tape? How can we see no movement happening? It strikes me that there's a feedback function, there's a pricing function that's just not responding here. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Well, you know, here's my take on that. I think that, you know, the, the Fed is done. That is, is that, you know, we've become the Bank of Japan. The Federal Reserve equals the Bank of Japan. So what happened in Japan before is now happening in the United States. And so what people are telling you, what the bond market is telling you, is it doesn't matter that the Fed is out of bullets. They can't do anything. It's all smoke and mirrors. They're, you know, they're telling you, we're giving you this forward guidance, and that actually is meaningful. No, it's not meaningful. It has no impact on the real economy. Yes, it can get you uh, uh, bankers to load up and and uh, you know get their 24 percent of uh, of the loan market for private equity. Yes, it can cause shares to to be bid up, and you can get IPOs that double. But it's not going to put money in people's pockets. Uh, the the average, you know, income earner. Right. So it, it really, on some level, it actually increases income inequality in that way. Uh, yeah. But what the bond market is telling you is it, it has no appreciable impact on the real economy uh, over the long term. Not only that, I don't believe it will have any impact on inflation over the long term. It's, we are Japan. Well, that's the key point. What the bond market is telling you is there's no expectation of inflation, even with pinning to the zero lower bound uh, for years to come. That's really the key takeaway for it. I'll play devil's advocate on the other point about the Fed being out of bullets. I think that every time we've thought the Fed was out of bullets, they find new mechanisms uh, to come out and step into the market. I think they've used uh, 2 to 4% uh, of some of the funds that, uh, that Congress has allocated 
for them uh, to go out and and lend and buy. Uh, so I'm not convinced that they are out of bullets. I think that they may find uh, continuing novel ways of doing things. But the reality, to exactly your point, the things that they're doing are not generating inflation. They're not able to fulfill the second component of their statutory mandate through traditional or unconventional monetary policy. You know, I, I'm probably more in Jeff Snyder's camp on this in the sense that, uh, you know, a lot of this is smoke and mirrors. It's very hocus pocus. And really what it is, is, is that the Fed, whenever they come up with these new mechanisms, these unconventional means, the, it's re about convincing people that it has impact that right. it's going to be meaningful in one way, shape, or form. You talked about uh, one of their two mandates, the other mandate obviously being employment. But both of those mandates, neither of them are going to be meaningfully impacted by what they have said. There's not. I just told you about 900,000 jobless claims, uh, initial right. jobless claims every week. You were just telling me that we're not going to see any meaningful inflation. That's what the bond market is signaling to us. So. Right. Nothing that they did has any impact on the two things that they're actually supposed to be going for. So to me, what that points out is that the, the Fed really, uh, even if they give you some novel program, the likelihood that that novel program will be impactful uh, has diminished. And the, the right. reason that it has diminished is because they're going to give you the most impactful stuff first. That is, is that they're going to use whatever they can that actually has the most oomph uh, first and everything that they grab in their grab bag afterwards is going to be less impactful because, they, you know, that's how they, they operate. They want to, you know, give you the maximum impact in the beginning. And so nothing right. that they, that's why I say they're out of bullets. Nothing that they do will be more effective than what they already have done. Yeah. And to add one more metaphor to the turning Japanese point that you were making, Chair Powell again yesterday talking about the, the importance and the need for greater fiscal policy. Right. Yeah. So I think that's he, he you hit the nail on the head. They're saying, look over here, look at all the great things we're doing. But by the way, because none of this stuff actually matters, look over here, because this is actually where uh, we need some action. I think that what uh, what Powell is telling you is, is what Bernanke told you, what Yellen told you in the last uh, cycle, that it's not about uh, monetary policy, it's about fiscal policy. When bad things happen in the private sector and no one can help, the only pe person, the only entity that can, co that can come to the rescue, even for a, a little bit of time, is uh, the government, the federal government, because they're the ones with the printing presses uh, no one else has that. Yeah. You know, it, it's probably also important that we should talk, Ed, about the time horizons that this sort of information is useful over and the fact that markets can continue to stay irrational. Look, the S&P can go up 4% tomorrow based on some random tidbit of news, uh, you know, a, a rumor about a, a vaccine, a rumor about better treatment, could be anything. And this is not something that is tied to short-term price action in markets. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I just going back to the whole September, October time frame, what I'm saying is, is that I think that uh, and I could be wrong, that this is the particular time where we're going to see a bit of a, a, coales a coalescence or whatever the word is between uh, the real economy and the financial economy. And then th that will be meaningful in some capacity. Uh, we've already seen that to a degree 
I believe we'll see that even more in the next uh, uh, weeks, six or seven weeks. Six or seven weeks. And this is really such an important point because very clearly the two have, have simply parted ways. Yeah. And, uh, and hopefully, hopefully, uh, it's the real economy that moves up towards yeah. uh, the financial economy. But I'm sure you can tell from the way that I, I position it that I have a great fear that it's not going to work out that way. Yeah, the fear is that it's going to be the other way around. Right. Yeah. Um, Ed, final thoughts. We've talked about a lot here today. What's your framework for people to take away from this, uh, the core of the argument? Yeah, I think the core is... Uh, it's the, the the real economy leads the financial economy over time that I don't care how uh, sus uh, suspended from reality the financial economy comes asset prices eventually uh, the their the earnings are reflective of uh, the prices are reflective of the earnings and the earnings are reflective of the economy and it just takes time for that to happen how much time we'll find out. But certainly over the medium term, two to three years, uh, uh, you're going to see that uh, come into, into, into being. I think that it'll be much sooner than that. I think now is one of those shakeout periods. My hope is that uh, 900,000 jobless claims quickly diminishes down to 700, 600, maybe even 500 by year end. And that's the sort of thing that will keep this uh, this reverse radical uh, doing okay, but the downside risk is that we undershoot uh, that the city economic surprise index goes the opposite direction, and that's going to eventually uh, hurt shares. Yeah. And as always, such a pleasure to have you walk us through the thesis, the framework. Uh You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.